Let's turn together in God's Word to Genesis 47 this morning. We've been seeing how God has provided through all the twists and turns in Jacob's life, and we remind ourselves that Jacob has been in Pharaoh's presence. The last time we were looking at Genesis together, he, was, he came in and he blessed Pharaoh, and when he left, he blessed Pharaoh. And then we see at the end of the passage that we looked at last time we were together there in verse 11 and 12, that Joseph took his father and his brothers and settled them in Goshen, provided food for them according to their numbers. But their needs were still evident, as we're going to see this morning. And remember, too, that God is the one who does provide. He is the one who does sustain us. So as we're thinking just of even of those words that we've just sung, we're going to also listen to the reading of God's Word, starting verse 13 of Genesis 47. This is the Word of God. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. And Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvests you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households, and as for food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh." So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, 
If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. And then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. This is the word of God. May he add his blessing and his help as we listen and as we learn from him this morning. How many of you remember those verses where Joseph takes all of the livestock and all of the seed and all of the land of the Egyptians? We kind of skip over that in our Sunday school lessons, don't we? It seems to be a little bit odd, doesn't it? When you think about it, you think to yourself, what's Joseph doing here? How do we handle these verses? I I have to admit, I came to those verses and I thought, now, what's going on here? What's, What's taking place? And it almost looks like Joseph is being somewhat heavy-handed, somewhat tyrannical here, and there are those who believe that to be the case. They say, this doesn't show Joseph in a very good light, and so let's just kind of skip over this and not talk about it. He takes the people's money, their livestock, their land, but I think we need to look more closely as we look at this passage for, for a deeper truth or perhaps another truth that that is uh, being set before us, and that is this, that as he takes these properties, he doesn't do it to to, uh, make himself richer. He does it because he has a concern for the entire society. Let's think about that this morning as we look at this before we move on to what we see in Jacob's life, what Joseph is doing. Let's look at this together. He gives them seed to plant, and he commands them to give a fifth to Pharaoh, to the, to the nation, while keeping the rest for themselves. He's acting wisely in this context. He's teaching the people to think of others. Now, I don't think this passage, at least I didn't read this anywhere, and I don't think it's teaching tax code. Look, this is how much profit you get, and this is how much you are to give back. I believe it's there for that reason. I believe these verses are recorded so that we might see at the very opening of the Bible, remember Genesis, we've talked about this before, Genesis being the the, the opening book of the Bible, what is being said here about God, about people. Here it says this, God cares for all people. He cares for all people, and when there is need such as we have here, He provides He opens his hand, the psalmist says, and satisfies the needs of every living thing, Psalm 145. He's righteous in all his ways and faithful in all his deeds. And here he mercifully gives a wise ruler to help people, this particular people in time of need. God sent Joseph, as Joseph said, God sent Joseph into Egypt to save many lives. He said that in past chapters, and here we're seeing that. He put Joseph in power, for he knows what happens when people live together and don't have good leaders. They don't live peacefully for long. 
They don't live in a way that is for the good of society for very long. Good leaders are especially important in times of strife, as we are seeing in our own day. Good leaders are important in such times for people quickly become desperate or they act immorally, they act violently. You can think of many world leaders, if you look back in your history textbook, to see that God placed certain men, women of certain temperament for those particular times because there, were, there was such a, a, a need for a strong authority. Joseph's words, I think, can be misunderstood. He says in verse 23, Behold, I have bought you and your land. But he's not acting tyrannically here. He's acting for their security. He's saying to them, Therefore you are mine. Listen to me and you'll survive. You will survive. Give a fifth back and the rest you may keep. Now, if we're to think a bit more broadly, maybe a bit more deeply, we could see God in this, can't we? God owns everything, and yet God doesn't demand everything back in return of our material possessions, though he is entitled to all of it. Think about that relationship. God says, I've made you, you're mine. Do, he goes on to say, he says this in so many words, and do as I say and you shall live. We're going to look more at man's call tonight in the sermon, how we're to live for the Lord, how we were created in his image and what that means. But Scripture says it in many different places, one in particular, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you have not received, is what Paul says. What, and, and we think of that. What do we have that we have not received? Perhaps you think, well, I've earned this, or I've done this, and I've done that. I'm entitled to that. We have a lot of that today. Entitled, entitled, I'm entitled, I'm entitled. But we, we, what we receive, God of all creation says, is given. It is given to us. And we're to listen to him and to do as he says. If we do that, well, we shall live. If we don't listen to him, the future is bleak as it was here for these Egyptians, as it was for the entire land of Egypt and Canaan and the then known world. Listen to the people's response to Joseph's words. He says, I bought you and your land. And what do they say to him? You've saved our lives we will be your servants. That's the only right response to Joseph. You've, you've saved us, and, and, and therefore we, we owe you our lives, everything. Tell us what we must do. God says to mankind, I've made you, and we respond, yes, and you've saved us. We will obey. Now, what's the problem? Naturally, the problem is this. We don't like to be subject to anybody or anything. We want things to run the way we want them to run. Oh, we'll elect leaders as long as they do what we tell them to do and give us what we tell them we want. We're, we're good with, the, with that sort of relationship. But because we have this, that, that mindset, our, our, our 
first response to Joseph is probably negative. Oh, what's he doing here? Looks to me like he's kind of stacking the deck. Looks to me like he's, he's kind of setting things up for himself. But he's not. He's doing this for the good of the world. His actions are not abusive, but protective and for good. He sets this society on stable ground and keeps it from devolving into chaos and ultimately to utter desolation. So too with God. His rule is good. His word is essential. His commands are essential. To reject his word is deadly. Egypt needed this wise leadership. All people need wise leadership. All people need to submit to God's all-wise leadership. If they don't, there will be no future and no fruitfulness. Now, there are so many issues we could look at to illustrate this truth. We don't have time to look at them all, but Rejection of God's law is leading civilization to a spiral downward with the future in question. With the God is dead uh, uh, diagnosis in the 60s and 70s, with the the, the moral uh, revolution, the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, the anti-establishment of postmodernism leading to today, what do we have? We say, well, we're okay with authority. We kind of have this love-hate relationship with authority. We love authority if it does what we want. We hate it if it tells us to do something we don't want. And we hate it even the most if it tells us that we have to somehow give up something to help others. prosperity, ironically, prosperity, we're more prosperous than we've ever been, and we've never been so self-absorbed in our history, I would submit, in this country. Obsessive individualism, obsessive self-love, leading to the rejection of God's commands. Experts saying, don't have children because we're going to destroy the planet. We're going, there's not going to be any natural resources left. It's, the, the lights are going to go out soon. If you, if you seek to care for society and for the future of society, experts come along, quote-unquote experts come along and warn us that soon we will overpopulate the earth and all the natural resources will be gone And we have to understand that these experts are nothing but false prophets for a false religion. Humanism, worshiping ourselves, thinking that we have our own solution and our own ways and that we're going to solve the world's problems. And what it is is anti-human and anti-God. It has no future. This religion simply approves selfishness and false teachings. Nowhere does God say in his word, And he will not be able to provide for creation. Nowhere does he speak to overpopulation as that problem which keeps him up at night. Saying, well, I don't know what I'm going to do with all these people and how I'm going to provide for all this land and for this globe and for this universe. I don't know how I'm going to do it. He doesn't say that anywhere. He says, fill the earth and subdue it. 
He wants the earth to be filled with God-fearers. He says, have children and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded, and it will go well with you. Turn away from the false gods and the false prophets who say, oh no, worship self. That's your only hope for the future. It's not our calling to change the world. I'm not saying that, that we, that we somehow have to step up and say, yes, we need to take over this. We're, we're, we're going to take it over. And we're going it, to, it's, it's, it's ours to control. No, but we are to be faithful where God has placed us, as Joseph was faithful where he was being placed. And what do we do? We pray for godly leaders that will promote a culture of life. And we respond to the call to go into politics if God is calling us to do that. Good leaders are godly leaders who care about society. Joseph had to take some tough measures here, no doubt about it. No one wanted to be in Joseph's shoes. This was not an easy position to fill. There was a famine, but his actions were for the good of society, not for selfish gain or for Pharaoh's renown. We need leaders who see individual need and how society can work together to help the need by coming together, teaching people their responsibility to each other, not polarizing us, not separating us and saying, no, no, you have nothing to do with those people. They have nothing similar, no common origin. Instead, we should be talking about our need as society to look up to God. And Joseph's leadership encouraged a healthy society because God wants a healthy society. He cares for people and desires that they would look to him to be saved. Well, the people submitted to Joseph's command, for behind it stood Pharaoh's power. They understood that they had to submit. But they could trust Joseph, for he had shown himself to be a godly leader, to be one who was for their good. Oh, for more godly leaders like Joseph. They cannot save a nation alone, but they can serve a nation for good. I was finished, more or less finished working in a sermon, and I came across a book title just on, on, on Friday uh, evening, which I think sums up what I, what I want to say. How, it, it's this. The, the title is Authority, How Godly Rule Protects the Vulnerable, Strengthens Communities, and Promotes Human Flourishing. I think that's what we should want. I think that's what we should pray for and we should work for. And we should be engaged in the process so that we can see to it that it is moved forward by obedient action, by God's grace. Pray for those in authority, for all those in authority, for everyone, but all those in authority, kings and rulers, Paul says to Timothy. Elect good leaders and pray for good leaders, not simply for personal gain, but because we care for the flourishing of society. Now, this is something of an aside, but I think it's rather interesting. To Pharaoh's credit, he doesn't rush in and overturn everything Joseph's doing. Can you imagine the temptation? They're in this famine, and Pharaoh wants to kind of hoard everything and and hold it for himself and say, no, 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 Joseph, no, be quiet. You don't know what you're talking about. It's all mine. It all belongs to me. 
four-fifths to them and a fifth to me? No, I want it all. What does that tell us about God's sovereignty? It says that the hearts of the kings are in the hand of God, Proverbs 21. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. God has the rulers in his hand. Now, here we see God acting lovingly, not only to the Egyptians as a society, but even to Pharaoh working in him, we have to believe, working in him to fight that temptation to swoop in and say, no, no, I want it all. So opposite from the individualism we see today, so opposite from the mentality that we see today in our people and in our leaders. People vote for those who promise them the most, taking from others with little thought to what impoverishment of the entire society would do for the stability of society. If you impoverish everyone, what's left? There's no stability. And all are in want. Well, obviously, God's hand was moving in all this, but don't miss the lesson of how authority should function and of how we should respond as those who are for others, caring for others, pointing them to a God who is a God of provision, a God who is gracious, a God who is good and who wants to protect the vulnerable and strengthen communities and promote human flourishing. Well, we have to move on to the covenant line. Verse 27, we move on. Israel, this word now, not speaking just of Jacob as an individual, but of of his family. Now, Israel settled in the land of Egypt. They gained possessions and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Can God bless his people in a society that cares little for him and little about itself? Yes, he can. And he does. I won't read the quote that I had intended to read uh, for sake of time from Boyce this morning, James Boyce, but he was saying, where would you, where would you expect God to, to cause Israel to flourish? Would it be in Babylon? Would it be in Egypt? No, you'd think Canaan there. There was a, a, a more, of, more land, more room to grow, and yet God is preparing his people to grow in the midst of this hardship. We know it's coming, don't we? But beginning of the book of Exodus, what do we read? We read that they are enslaved and that they become uh, persecuted and they are, uh, uh, are face hardships and they increase in number. In Canaan, in 215 years, he writes, the, Hebrews, the Hebrew clan grew to about 100 persons. By the end of the 400 years there in Egypt, they had increased to more than 2 million. Blessing from God. Is blessing from God limited to place? Is our blessing from place or is it from Him? That's a question we want to ask ourselves as we, as we think about this passage. Do we have to be in a certain place, a certain time in order to know blessing? No. God can bless and indeed He surprises us with blessing in those places where we least expect it. You see, there's a The challenge here before Israel, before this hardship comes, there is blessing. They they become fruitful and multiply, verse 27 tells us. Now, that's a a hard thing for us to take as humans. We like 
prosperity. We like material prosperity. We want a lot. We want excess. We want to have leftovers. We don't want to be, be found uh, with not having enough. Material prosperity can be a faith killer. So there's a danger here. We have to recognize the real potential danger for Israel, for Jacob and his family. They must not forget that true blessing comes from God and not from place. Lest they say, well, we're going to settle down right here. And we're going to take in whatever society would offer. This was not their home. These practices of this nation were not their practices. We can remember, or we need to remember that too, when society changes around us. Material prosperity is not our God. When it becomes our God, what do we see? Greed, corruption, injustice quickly follow. We live with an eye upon the Lord. And we say, Lord, what is blessing? What does blessing look like? And he says, I'll tell you what blessing looks like. Blessed is the one who meditates on God's law day and night. Blessed is the one who does what? Bears fruit in keeping with righteousness. In season and out of season. Jacob was not to forget the land that God had promised him where the covenant had been made. The relationship from which blessing came. Jacob and family lived in Egypt, but their hearts were to be set on pilgrimage as the psalmist had it in his own heart in Psalm 84. The law of God and the God of the law ordered their lives and showed them where to find security and how to treat one another as they lived in community. Don't forget that as you live in the United States of America, we've experienced material prosperity and all the things that money can buy, but true blessing is from God. Yes, material blessing is from God as well. He gives that. The greater blessing is new life in him, as we're going to talk about tonight. It's to know peace and joy and hope in him. Now, it's hard to summarize all the temptations around us. It's a long list. I don't want to, in the midst of this, though, I don't want to leave the impression that we're to be monastic, to be anti-creation, anti-world, to where pretty soon we're all backed up into this corner and we're saying, well, it's just, it's that individualistic mindset again, well, it's just me alone. No, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. We're to be engaged and be ambassadors and witnesses, trusting God to provide all that we need and showing people that our trust is in Him. It's easy to love the world and for God to be crowded out. Israel's an illustration of that here, even after their bondage. You remember what happened to them, right? They were in bondage. They were there in, in Egypt in bondage for over 400 years, and they're released from bondage. And what do they do? They go out and they begin to imbibe from all the surrounding cultures, their gods, their religious ideas. And soon God says what through the prophet Isaiah? They've forgotten me. They don't understand anything. They, they, they live like the world. They, 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 there's no distinction there. There's no witness My people have forgotten me. They follow false gods. The hardship led the people to cry out to the Lord again, and he saved them. Hardships can wake individuals up, can wake nations up. Hardships do not mean God is absent. Rather, that if he is absent, things are only going to get worse. 
God would do his work in his people in Egypt, in Babylon, and elsewhere. Well, here's Israel settled in Egypt, not a godly nation. God has settled us in this nation, a nation that's running away from him. But we don't run from God. We must turn to God and say, you, you have saved me. I will be your servant. I will follow you. The greatest blessing is coming, eternity with God. But God gives blessing now. He wants us to be fruitful and to multiply. And as the psalmist prays, so we pray. May the Lord bless the God-fearers and make their number increase. Psalm 115, verses 13 and 14. God sees you and he sees what you do. He knows the pressures that you face. All those are ordained by him to turn you to him, to show you your own weakness that you might learn of him. He wants you to walk closely with him. All the hardships, the harsh surroundings, the difficult relationships with classmates, the difficulties in marriage, the difficulties of a blasphemous coworker, all these things to lead you to turn to him and ask for wisdom and for perseverance and for faithfulness. And what do we find when we turn to him? We find that he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, providing all that we need so that in all things he might receive the glory. What does he do? The Lord says, I care so much for these people. I will send a deliverer. He sends Moses. We're getting ahead of the story a bit here, but he sends Moses and he leads the people out. What does he do? He sees us here below. He says, what am I, what am I to do? I'm going to send a deliverer. I'm going to send my son. I care for these people. I'm going to deliver them. He sends his son who lives a perfect life and offers perfect sacrifice for sin. He sends him and he is one who is raised from the dead, sins into heaven, is interceding for his people, praying for you now. And he's praying what? What does he pray? He says, as he's praying for his disciples in John 17, Father, I'm not praying that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them while they're in the world so that they might point people to you. So that more would hear and more would turn from sin. And look to him for forgiveness, to look to him for protection. So what do we do? We remember that blessing comes from him alone. We remember that we are to tell others where to find blessing and direction. We're to pray for godly leaders. We're to pray for godly community and to work for godly community. We're to pray that God would be glorified where we are and by what we do and say that our lives might bear the fruit of grace. That is what God has ordained for you. That's why you are where you are right now. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you put us in the place you would have for us in this time, in these circumstances. Lord, we pray for for help. We pray for leadership that would be serving society. Our hope is not in man. Our hope is not in what government can do. 
We know that when government is directed according to your word, it alleviates some measure of suffering, and that is our prayer that there would not be suffering. We pray, too, that you would make your church bold, that you would make us bold to proclaim you as the only place for total deliverance from suffering, from pain, even from death. O Lord, make your church strong in hard times. Make her a bright light in dark times. Make her a preservative in times where so much is slipping away and spoiling and rotting. Father, hear us that you might be glorified in and through your people and for your eternal glory. Amen. Number 106B, that's what we're going to sing now as we turn in our hymnals to 106B. Oh, praise the Lord for he is good. We're going to sing stanzas 1 through 5 and then 13 and 14 as we stand to sing 106B. Father, we thank you for the way you work in creating.